Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. Thank you so much for lending me your ears. And the only non-renewable resource you've got, that, of course, is your time. If you are new here, of course, I hope that you will stay all the way through to the end and that you will have been convinced to go ahead and subscribe and get more suncast in your life. Today's entrepreneur has a story that I believe you're going to love, and it's going to do just that, convince you that you've landed in the right place, at least for today. Greg Patterson has ridden multiple technology waves and always seems to have a second sense for where the next break is going to happen. Greg was an executive for Hewlett Packard, running multiple global businesses prior to jumping into renewables back in 2006, where he successfully led not one but two startups in solar and then energy storage to successful exits. I first heard of Greg when he was running PV Powered back at the time I was a customer. And PV Powered, for those uninitiated, was an inverter manufacturer based in Oregon, one of the two exits I've mentioned. So when industry veteran and friend Eric Hafter asked me to check out what he and Greg were up to with their new startup, I was all too eager to hear. As a longtime leader in the solar and tech industries, Greg and his team recently made headlines by winning the American Made Solar Prize. You may have heard our cameo with Greg when we interviewed him at RE+. The American Made Solar Prize, of course, recognizes companies' commitments to using American-made materials and manufacturing. He and his team at Origami Solar are incorporating steel into the frames of solar modules instead of your traditional aluminum frame. This not only helps contribute to the strengthening of the solar panel itself, makes it more durable, but also, of course, it's contributing to the revitalization of our steel industry here at home. Greg shares insights into the current state of the solar industry, what sets origami solar apart, and his vision for the future of clean energy. Stay tuned for an enlightening conversation with a true industry trailblazer. Hey, if you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to the show as that will ensure that you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this. Of course, you can always check out the more than 550 additional founder stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com. But for now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. You know, I strive to bring folks on who we can learn from multiple instances that their pattern matching has been so honed through multiple iterations of doing similar or the same thing, but for different audience, different company, such that we can really hear what they've learned through that process. And I can truly say that I rarely have a guest who has as much opportunity and deep experience in pattern matching, especially through the process of growing and exiting companies or or bringing higher value to the shareholders by having an exit to, in Greg's case, to publicly traded companies than Greg Patterson 
And it's an honor to finally have you here on the Suncast stage, Greg. Welcome. Thank you, Nico. I have so enjoyed listening to your podcasts and I think you bring great insights. And I love how you bring the story behind the story, which is usually the most fascinating. So thank you for letting me join you. I appreciate it. And thank you for letting me probe and and dig into as many corners as I can to try to learn from you. You know, I think that our early years are often instructive and inform how we ultimately, who we ultimately become and how we become, right? Whether we develop early, it's usually based on an impetus or three from a family friend or a mentor through some organization, be it a church or a civic organization. And then there's also deep inner yearnings that some folks follow and others and others don't until much later in life. Was there a moment in your early years where you can now look back and say, hmm, that might have been a sign that I was destined to kind of become the person I've become? I do. I have got some good stories. <laughs> but at the time, you don't know it. It's in hindsight that I, yeah. I think you pull or connect the dots mm-hmm. that says how it happened. And the first seminal one for me, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, big urban, very diverse community. And right before high school, my parents moved out to Bainbridge Island, which is outside of Seattle. And it was the first time I ever had to make new friends. It was a rocky road, but that's where I learned. Uh, It's the classic sob story of a kid comes in, can't make a friend. My clothes were so awkwardly different from this small island community outside of Seattle versus Washington, D.C. And for my first two years, uh, I was the new kid that uh, stopped eating lunch in the cafeteria because I'd have to sit by myself and I'd get embarrassed. And what that taught me, I became much more aware at that young age, how do you adapt to a different culture and truly figure out how do you build friendships and relationships and become part of a community from the outside looking in? And that has reaped incredible benefits because, you know, at one point, it's like every company, every team and every country, and I've been to, gosh, over 100, has unique cultures. So I became much more effective at kind of what I call situational understanding. How do I work in this unique group? Because it's not a recipe. And so that has helped me navigate my career and throughout life, personally and professionally. And as we will see, your professional career has indeed spanned multiple cultural, we'll say indoctrinations and integrations. Did you ever have any early influence around entrepreneurship or were you kind of always destined for more of a, maybe a traditional business environment? How do you think about that? Well, I decided to become an engineer. I was good at math and science in high school and I decided that engineering would play to that and it was very in demand then and now. Yeah. And I decided to go into that, but it, it was because I was good, but I didn't have a clear picture of where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. My dad was a high level bureaucrat in the federal government. So I didn't have a lot of insights as to what are the options that you could pursue. Right. But my model was get into a really good big company and just work there and hopefully go. And I was lucky enough to be hired by Hewlett Packard, which back in the early eighties was like, 
the top engineering company to work for if you could. It was hard to get in, but the culture of HP from the founders, Bill and Dave, was wonderful. They were progressive and so like that. And my first few years were wonderful. So I started as a manufacturing engineer doing kind of assembly automation, mm-hmm. kind of just worked my way up. And I never had a definitive career path. And never in my early days or even literally near to where I became an executive for Hewlett Packard, did I ever have that as a goal? I kind of took, you know, in hindsight, I loved it. I kind of took what seemed interesting to me. I was always looking to get a new experience. And that's where I followed. I was the classic followed my heart, not my head. I kept thinking about it, but my fundamental drive was to learn something new. And as I went through that journey, I realized as I moved up to middle management and then executive, I turned into the turnaround guy. I was never called the turnaround guy, but I would run to where the fire was uh-huh. <laughs> just because it was interesting. I'd love to solve problems. And so I moved a lot. And going back to my previous story about how do you adapt, I would mm-hmm. move around geographically and organizationally to go after the things. And I learned so many different pieces of the business doing that way. Yeah. And in fact, when I became an executive, it wasn't, I didn't interview for the job. I was running the R&D organization for the printer group and the digital media was popping up and it was disrupting everything from analog to digital media. And we were in the printing group at the time where I was, and I realized that, you know, film was going to be obsoleted by printing. Yeah. But at the same time, camera phones were showing up and we had to figure out how do we get cameras from a phone and get it onto a piece of paper and realize that that piece of paper may be transient because ultimately as digital devices, phones primarily, are going to allow you to share pictures without having a hard copy. So how do we deal with that? So uh, again, I realized and I was able to see the bigger picture that HP didn't grasp, that we needed to get into the digital age and feel about how do we build an ecosystem around digital images to keep our business viable once prints are going, we're going to start decaying. Ultimately, I was unsuccessful getting HP to change from what I would call an operations company to a experience company. And I worked uh, with Apple and a lot of other big companies. And I saw what Apple was doing, the magic behind Steve Jobs' vision. Yeah. And I was trying to get HP to adapt that. And the difference between Apple culture and HP culture, HP was really product and operational. And Apple was very much design and experience. And what you can build as traction and loyalty to that brand with experience at the core. And I was working my tail off to try to get HP to bring in a chief design officer right? as a seminal way to change the culture. Again, wasn't successful and I can't tell you if it was good or bad, but ultimately that was where I decided, you know, after I bought my company, I saw how much fun and innovative things a startup CEO could do. I decided I'm going to go into startup. Yeah. And I was at an age where making widgets, which I felt I was doing for my high tech career, was ultimately not nearly as compelling to me. And I said this in my head, I don't think my grandchildren are ever going to talk about how good a printer I made. But if I could get into renewables and I looked at renewables and I believe solar was the best play in terms of long term upside, I said, I want to save the planet. And that became my drive. Greg, as I look at the broader picture of what is still your career, you put in, what was it, over 20 years at HP? 
before effectively changing careers? It was about 25 years that I was at HP. Goodness. At some point, most folks are good with just that, that one career. <laughs> and uh, what I'm finding is that there are a lot of folks who will identify with maybe the, the crisis of conscience or the inner struggle that you began to feel 23, 24, 25 years into working for the same company. Often, I would imagine banging your head up against the same inflexibility that you just described. At what point did it become clear to you, not only I want to go do something else, like leave and go to a different industry, but which industry that would be? How did you make that choice? Well, there's several things. One, the kind of the literal two by four to the head was realizing that big companies struggle to innovate. When you get to a size, literally Fortune 100, uh, it's harder and harder for big companies to truly innovate and commercialize it. They may have great R&D teams, which HP did, but they struggled to innovate. And I realized HP was struggling to deal with the innovation and disruption of digital media versus analog and the uh, ability to fundamentally change their culture from an operations and product company to companies like what Apple was doing to disrupt back then. Literally, digital media and experiences across multiple solutions, and you build an ecosystem. I mean, you and I joined the solar industry about the same time, which tells me that you probably started thinking about the solar industry before I did, because I sort of fell into it in 2006. When did it become apparent, and how did you select sort of the, the next step in your career? I'm curious, a lot of people's story is, that they were sort of pulled into and other folks are, I had this eureka moment, I identified climate change and, and solar is the best vehicle. Could you tell me what's, what's true for you about that? It was a combination of things. I had just bought a web-based startup that was focusing on how do you deal with images, photos, and how do you send them to your Walgreens store and other things and be able to just share. So I saw that as the future. That was at HP. I bought, when I was an executive at HP, my division of HP, I was buying it to enhance our future opportunity. And it was a very successful, a very dramatically financially successful acquisition. Mm -hmm. So as a result of that, the corporate development that does the mergers and acquisitions for a large company like HP allowed me to go look at all of the markets out there. They basically did a survey. One of my thoughts is where HP should go look at other acquisitions for growth and profit and so forth. And part of that was renewables. And it was just one of many, but it grabbed me because I was also at an age where I was thinking about, I've had kids and eventually I'm going to have grandkids, I hope. And now I do. But the realization that saving the planet grabbed me in a way that I've never been grabbed. It, it says I could do that. And the insights I gained from watching how nimble and innovative small companies can be. And I realized that solar was the renewable area that I thought was going to be most compelling long-term from a business perspective. That's where I kind of decided I was going to move into a startup and get into renewables with a focus on solar. It's worth noting for those who don't have the deep history in solar that you do, or the, the kind of around the time that you and I jumped in the industry together, that this is a time where people were literally talking about printing solar. It was like the future of solar will be printed, yeah. right? Things that, that we still to this day have not fully seen manifest in manufacturing, although there are companies that are much closer, right? But you got unisolar was roll to roll sort of printing technology. There were any number, there were companies that had, that were dedicating 
to print sort of printing solar onto tents for for the government. I want the listener to keep that in mind when they try to connect the dots here of why an HP executive stumbled across solar at all, right? It's not hard for me to understand and make the stretch, but it might be for others to really understand, like, how did you get to solar? That doesn't make sense. You were at HP. The next question is, how did you find this tiny power conditioning and and inverter manufacturer out of Bend, Oregon, that we call PV Power, that had become in many ways a small but mighty and beloved startup in the solar industry? Yeah. Well, a couple things. One, I had a, in my network, uh, there was somebody that was related in an investor in PV Power that wanted to bend my ear. Uh, I'd shared with that person that uh, I was kind of loose in the socket at HP. And he was aware enough that, uh, you know, they might be looking for a CEO with more experience on how do you commercialize something. So that's how I found it. And then second point is I started doing research on inverters. And it is the truly the most intelligent part of a solar system. <laughs> and secondarily, there was big problems in inverters in the industry back in that domain, in that era. And so I knew I was just smart enough to realize that go into an industry that's going to grow quick, solar, and find a problem that could be solved. And that problem was reliability. I never had a chance to meet you, but I worked with Brett a lot. Bought mm-hmm. a lot of PV powered and products, know Jack really well through the advanced energy team. And it's just fascinating for me to be able to sort of go back and almost like relive this narrative of these companies. You, so you were with PV powered for, for five years and ultimately ended up uh, taking that company through an acquisition with, at the time, a very strong company. The industry leader by a wide margin had uh, kind of cleaned Satcon's clock, a company called uh, Advanced Energy. Before we jump into Advanced Energy, which itself is allows us to kind of get a sense of how you were able to leverage your HP skill set. Did you ever get to scratch the product design itch now moving into product manufacturing company at PV Powered and how? Well, I realized that the the design side that I kind of realized was disrupting high tech. Mm-hmm. Again, it goes back to, I said, it's situational assessment of what needed, what is needed. The innovation in solar inverters mm-hmm. was all about fundamental performance and reliability. Yeah. How do you deliver an inverter that will last as long as the solar system itself? And it was kind of crazy at the time. You know, failure rates were through the roof for the industry. There wasn't a good player. And I figured that's what we had to do. And that's where I started. And I said, the experience is good. But luckily, we had some great people that allowed us to give a customer experience that was different than the industry had. What can you tell me about that time from 2006 through ultimately the, um, taking through the acquisition that, that you found instructive in those, that early six years crunch period, 2006, 2012, where the industry was beginning to boom and you finally were able to do something that you felt was contributing to uh, the world in a way that you had direct influence over. What can you tell me about the way you grew up professionally, but also how you saw the industry forming that, that kept you engaged and said, okay, there's so much to work on here. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, there's a good story. I mean, here I go from this ivory tower of HP exec to the classic garage with 10 guys and gals looking at me trying to say, what do we do now, boss? It was humbling, deeply humbling. I, I learned a lot at a big company, but I become a much better leader and business person running a startup, having to make payroll every two weeks. 
But the best thing I ever did, and I got to give credit to Eric Peterson, who's been a, my wingman on every one of my startups, including this one. He has got a marketing, sales, and strategy mind that is the top I've ever seen. And he got me out in a little panel van, driving around installers in California, flipping burgers and hot dogs for the installers at lunch to go understand the market and the customers. And I learned more in that two months of traveling California on the road in a panel van than I could in terms of what the market really was. And that insight in terms of the feedback on the products that my company was shipping them and the industry helped me coalesce the value prop we had to pursue. And that was the reliability with high performance. And if we could solve that, we will make a great contribution to solar and grow this company because ultimately customers are king and they truly have the insights. And if you're willing to hear the honest to God truth of your products and the industry issues, you learn a lot. You had great success with both product development and creating customer and shareholder value with the product PV powered. And you ended up being able to now go kind of back into fully corporate world, publicly traded company, which I have to assume was its, uh, it was its own kind of unique experience. I'd love to hear the story of, you know, you're sitting at some point 2011 in your office and you're thinking about how the industry is evolving. You have a front row seat to the ways that asset owners are running into problems, uh, real problems with power conditioning, with how to use the electricity. Can you tell me the story of how demand energy came to mind for you, how it it was born as an idea of a product or how you found your way into, you know, thinking about storage, which we all know now is, was the next evolution of our industry, but it seems prescient to, in 2013, have sort of found your way into a company that would work on it. The seminal shift is I realized that as we, we solved what I would say, solved the inverter reliability problem. I was looking at what's the next value that we could do. And it is about power quality and the latency of solar natively that is problematic with virtually all renewable energy sources. And I realized that I was working with my team to figure out, can we move there? And this is where I realized that really, one, I've always believed software is where you can have a huge multiplier on shareholder value. And how do we figure out, how do we start doing power conditioning, but more importantly, dealing with the fundamental dispatchability of renewable energy and specifically solar. So I really believe that the next big hurdle for solar advance, again, my mission is to save the world. How do we get solar to be 50 to 70% of the power portfolio worldwide, not 1% to 3%? And so I realized storage is the key. And I didn't want to get into the infinite number of chemistries that you can do with batteries, because that's interesting and that'll be solved. It's how do you create the super intelligent control system that allows you to deal with all of the value sources, i.e. all of the power quality to literally, you know, dealing with the peaks and valley and the dynamics of the grid, which is truly the most fundamental challenge that we have now. And so I decided I wanted to go into storage. And that was my next one. I left Advanced Energy. I said, that's where I wanted to go. I started researching it. Where do we make a big contribution there that enables solar to look dispatchable? Was demand energy similar to PV powered where you effectively sort of knew the direction you wanted to go and at some point, this organization that needed to bring in a professional CEO 
found you and sought you out? Was it a recruiter relationship? Well, again, it was, I found this again through my personal network. A friend, a distant friend that I knew was also a serial entrepreneur, very yeah. successful. His name's Dave Curry. Great guy. Super mature, humble. Uh, and he realized that he was a great visionary, but his skills weren't in how do you drive commercial success. And so uh-huh. we, he reached out and uh, we started talking and he had started a company, uh, Demand Energy, to go flesh that out. And he had a unique position in New York City versus all of the other startups in that storage space were in California. Yeah. And he helped me understand why New York City was a unique market to push the envelope on how do you manage it. The business models in New York City were tough. He had a passionate lead customer that wanted to try to solve the challenges of a congested grid. Yeah. And the density in New York City says you can't just string more copper when you've got a peak demand yeah. or it's this and that. Literally, it's just there's no room left underground to run bigger copper wires to support this peak load on this block on Park Avenue. Mm. And so he convinced me that if we're going to really come up with something special, New York City is going to teach us the lessons that California doesn't. It's a much simpler model in California to come up with a financial return on a storage system. And I jumped in. Why did NLX acquire demand? Well, we had the machine learning. We had an incredible technologist that truly was an MIT PhD. He had a huge toolbox in terms of a technical toolbox. And he came up literally with the algorithms that would allow us to virtually optimize at any scale across any business models rapidly the economic return you could get. And approved it. And Enel was kicking the tires of every startup out there. Our algorithms won. And that's why. Hmm. And we had the proof with just because we had a much more difficult challenge and shows the flexibility to adapt to any of the models and scale from a, how do you optimize literally at a distribution node to a transmission node with any balance of assets, be it solar, wind, or any generator and optimize the financial returns situationally to do that. And that was literally the reason that Enel, we won the beauty contest that Enel was running at the time. What did you learn from not one, but two, now your second acquisition by a major publicly traded company operating in the energy sector? Oh, there's a long list, but the the (laughs) seminal items, truly, you got to get clear uh, on what's the value proposition you're going after and test it. That's one. And then two, you've got to assemble a team that can do it. And demand energy, we pretty much had to roll the entire technical team to get the people we needed. And I was able to source and finding those and getting them landed is non-trivial, but I won't go into that now. And then the third is to create a culture where that mission and value proposition you're pursuing is clear to everybody. And I practice what I coin, how do you tap into the collective wisdom, which is not the collective intelligence, but the collective wisdom of the team to solve the problems that nobody solved yet. How do you test the value proposition? Well, talk to a lot of people, Mm -hmm. really understand the problems. You know, value propositions come from the problems that are being faced. 
And an example in storage, there's an infinite number of uh, rate structures in the world, virtually. And you got to start with, okay, every one of those rate structures represents a different way to monetize storage Mm. in the network, the electrical network in that region. And usually there's dozens, if not hundreds of rate structures in each region, depending on customer, from literally distribution to big companies in commercial and industrial to homeowners. So how do you play that and understand the constraints? But to me, what I internalized was the value proposition had to be the scalability and flexibility. Because you don't want to have 50 different algorithms. You'd like to have one that's scalable that go, if you want to put solar on your outhouse, do you literally have to deal with central Manhattan? How do we keep them from having to tear up Park Avenue to try to stick in more copper or new or upgraded transformer to feed it on the 99 degree heat wave in the future? Hey, family, one quick reminder here that if you haven't yet joined Resource Labs, you are missing out. It is our outstanding community. It's the evolution of Suncast moving from presentations, you listening to us talk, to conversations. Our community involved in conversations as varied as powering Australia to green hydrogen to crypto and so many other things. Our newsroom is full of great insights. The main chat and even our RE Plus Where to Party At channel have been popping off. We've got more than 100 folks enjoying the community, and I would invite you in. You can do that at mysuncast.com forward slash community. Come see how Resource Labs can help you grow your influence, impact, and income. See you inside. Hey, I know you are a savvy listener. Heck, you're listening to Suncast and You've probably, as a result, heard of a little company called SunGrow. If you're not using SunGrow inverters on your projects, I would love to better understand why. They are the inverter of choice for many of the EPCs that I know. SunGrow is the number one in gigawatts deployed. They've got the top bankability in the industry. Heck, Solve uses them for the majority of their projects. And you may not even know, but SunGrow has the largest R&D team in the power electronics industry. These three key points alone have convinced most of the major U.S. developers to prefer SunGrow. They now experience a diversified supply chain, local service team, patented containerized product, all with their seamless pain-free commissioning. Look, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So why spend all of your cycles on what inverter to use when the largest EPC in the land has already done the heavy lifting for you? You can have their same experience for your projects. See how at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. We're now in the second successful exit, i.e. acquisition, where you have created a ton of value for the team, the founders, the shareholders, and gotten a chance to work on the integration of one entity into another. Back to things that you did in HP as a vice president, one of the successful acquisitions that you mentioned early on in the interview that sort of became uh, a strength for you. It seems like that uh, that skill set of understanding what to look for, how to acquire, uh, would be valued highly at Enel. And I've heard you say that the integration is way more important than the acquisition. I'd like for you to just maybe wax prophetic a little with me and think 
help me think about, because I've never been in this position, you know, you're a year-ish into your role at, uh, as CTO at NLX. How are you thinking about that integration and the acquisition and uh, your role at that company? And I'd like to hear your thoughts as you discuss that around, you know, other companies in our industry right now that are making tons of acquisitions like Enphase and Generac and Shell and soon, uh, you know, we see even the, the successful software startups like Arcadia acquiring a number of companies. I'd love for, for them to be able to hear from your wisdom about kind of how you were pondering the situation at that moment. Okay. That is a, that is a great question. And a couple things, you know, I'll, I'll talk to the generic aspect of what would my coaching be to a large company on an acquisition path? First and foremost, you realize that you're acquiring them because they're different. And you got to really unpack what are the differences that are essential? And then how do you manage those differences? Because differences usually create friction. And so you've got to think through. That's where people spend huge amounts of time on diligence and acquisitions. But the integration is much more subtle and more of an art form than a science. Because you've got to embrace that you're buying that company because they're different. They could do something that you couldn't do yourself because no company starts with generally acquisition. They just usually fail in trying to achieve some change and so forth. So think about it. And ultimately, those differences have to go away. But managing the rate of those differences coming in alignment and both realizing that big company has to come towards the small company and the small company has to go towards the big company. But your goal is to increase the value portfolio you bring. And an underrepresented is to think through the cultural dynamics that can be done. How do you get kind of the startup culture and often innovative, but not as controlled with the classic big company operational efficiency and procedural? The small company can't get to be a big company without the operational procedural. So it's not like it's bad and good. It's how do you balance those so that the big company gets more agile and innovative and the small company gets more procedural and efficient. And that rate of change is what is the art form and being very intentional and conscious of where you want both halves of this new merger to wind up. So that's one key element. And I'm fascinated about it because I love to see how organizational dynamics work. So that's it. You know, Greg, a couple of years ago, you or two, a couple of three years ago, you decided to take a sabbatical at a time where many would be justified and right to just say, going to hang up. Uh, the Spurs have had a good run, long 25-year career in one industry, another 15-year career with two successful exits in the renewables industry. And that's not how your story ends. In the middle of the pandemic, you decide to jump back into the startup culture. And I got to ask myself and therefore ask you, why engage in such self-flagellation? The simple answer, I'm a sucker for a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me what, what possible good idea could have been so good to bring you off the bench. Well, a, a good friend of mine that I've known since the PV Power days, mm -hmm. the founder of Origami, uh, Eric Hafter. It's not the sexiest thing alive, but him and his co-founder had this idea of how aluminum frames have not had any change to them materially in the 40 years of solar's history. And what could be done and what's the value proposition by moving to steel? You know, traditionally and for decades, steel's been one third the cost of aluminum on a per kilogram basis. But 
it also, uh, if you integrate that with really high volume fabrication methods that we use roll forming, you can bring a lot of value and probably higher performance. And what we believed was a much lower greenhouse gas footprint. And that idea, and he was, did a great job of kind of bringing me in as an advisor, getting me teased and more involved. And then I said, God, I'm kind of motivated. I think this has legs. Uh, and I came in as the COO. And then as we started picking up, he is one of those great, humble leaders that was saying, you know, I, I have a great idea, but I don't know how do I get it across the finish line. And he said, Greg, you've done this already twice. Would you be willing to take the CEO role? And I, it took me six weeks with deep conversations with my wife before I told him yes. Fascinating. Walk me through the validation points of that value proposition that over the course of the last two years, including you know, DOE and uh, partners in the, in the marketplace that have proven out the hypothesis Eric and his team had developed and sort of where, where you're at now with a product that on the surface, most of us, myself having worked at Trina, would look at, look at it and think, yeah, why, why would we use steel uh, in, in solar panel frames? Uh, you know, like help, help those, those who have this question mark over their head get comfortable with what you've gotten comfortable with over the last three years. You bet. Well, every time we talk steel with anybody in solar, they look at us cross-eyed and go, what the heck? And it comes down to their core issues and their concerns. Valid is corrosion, steel rust, aluminum doesn't, no, it does, yeah. but it, not really. And then weight. Steel is almost three times as heavy yeah. uh, as aluminum. Well, we'd spent a lot of time looking at this, you know, what we could do and how can you create structural strength through the cross section of the frame versus just throw more steel at it. So we've got it down to where we can solve those two issues. There's a new generation of corrosion coatings or newer generation of corrosion coatings with zinc, aluminum, and magnesium that are available everywhere in the world that really, and several steel companies offer warranties 25 years for corrosion protection. So corrosion we could solve. It just wasn't, a, people weren't aware of it uh, on the solar side. And then the weight, that is where a lot of our secret sauce is, is in terms of how do you design the cross-section that uses the minimum amount of steel, dramatically less volume than aluminum frames on a volume basis, <laughs> and create the structural strength. And then you play to steel's inherent characteristics, much higher yield strength, much better fatigue resistance, modulus elasticity will be beneficial for those that are technical and have a mechanical engineering background. That allows us to do it. And so we spent a long time figuring that out. And then once we figured that could be done, we started packaging the whole value proposition. Again, if your base material is one-third the cost of the incumbent design, if the performance of steel frames with the weight uh, restriction can outperform, and we tested that at third party, and then we did our own analysis on GHG, carbon footprint reduction, we got a third party, an investor grade company that does ESG reporting on environmental impacts. We found out we can reduce it by 90% approximately. It all came together. Well, uh, I have to say once again, I have to believe this is something to do with the air in the Pacific Northwest perhaps uh, makes the crystal ball more clear uh, in some way, but 
you seem to have this prescient way of finding a vector towards where, where both policy and just great ideas meet. It will be easy in retrospect for folks to think, oh, this made a ton of sense, right? Because they will see that three years in after a lot of uh, hard work on your part and some market validation and a DOE grant that the Inflation Reduction Act was created and that Next Tracker announced three, not one, but three steel manufacturing deals in the United States in a period of three months. And there was a whole bunch of reshoring of steel manufacturing and, and, uh, as the saying says, better to be lucky than good, but I believe it's a mix of both for you. I love the story of our ability to incorporate the narrative of something like origami, which is looking at um, really rethinking the things that we've said, oh, the way we've always done things, to incorporate a way that we can better manufacture it in a world where domestic manufacturing and domestic talent are more valued than they have been to now. How do you think about the current um, sort of solar market and what is what are the stories that you can tell me, at least what can you disclose about the stories that you're having with folks in the solar industry right now who are seeing the value in what it is that you guys have postulated for years? We have been talking to virtually everybody in the solar value chain and the steel supply chain. And so what we're internalizing, I mean, the, the thing that's happened in the last two years and intensely in the last four or five months. The pandemic has created and shown the fundamental risks and flaws in long, long supply chains with the backups at ports and so like that. The developers of these big utility scale projects have a hard time planning and hitting their schedule milestones contractually with contractual liabilities on those when they're not sure when they can get their solar modules from Asia. So that's one. So it's lots of uncertainty because of that. We realize that long supply chains are inherently fragile. And then if I take it, what the lessons learned of the last six months with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you realize that a concentration of a critical societal supply like energy is problematic and has both economic consequences, national security consequences, and business and commercial consequences that make it even harder. And so the challenge is how do we solve this? And the beauty is we always wanted to drive energy independence, which is the same as energy security. And so with steel frames, given the cost deltas, we can compete and drive cost savings into frames, even if we produce them in what is viewed as higher cost regions, be it Europe, US, North America. So that is kind of the cherry on our value proposition. We've got the cost improvements, the GHG improvements, the performance improvements, but now you can source these things. And the frame is the second most expensive part of a solar module. Most expensive being the silicon or the glass? It's the cells. The cells is number one. Uh, frame is number two. Glass is, I think, three or four. Yeah, I would guess that EVA probably is number three or four. Yeah, it could be. It's in that. It's in that range. And so, we're solving a major issue. We bring domestic jobs and content back, reduce the supply chain for the module makers that are not, you know, that are in the Western world, U.S., Europe, and so forth. They're still sourcing their aluminum frames primarily from Asia, and so those frames are problematic to get in, just like modules are for the developers. Is it possible to protect the work that you've done in traditional patent form? Yeah, we believe so. Absolutely. Because again, it's the concept and we're growing our IP portfolio. 
we're expanding it into the fabrication because we're working so closely with kind of leading role forming companies uh, across regions of the world. And we're understanding, well, how do you play that fine line where you keep it capable, but you push the envelope to deliver the lightest, highest performing frame you can. So that's one. But there's also, we believe, IP. We've already filed for some in the fabrication side. And then finally, role forming gives you the ability to add features that extruded aluminum can't deliver without significant added cost. So we are thinking about how do we revolutionize the mounting and installation methods that we could bring with steel, roll form steel frames versus aluminum extruded frames. One of the reasons that our traditional mounting approach exists is because the frames aren't strong enough to mount directly. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit between the lines here, but do you remember Jim and I, I mean, SunTech tried to do this back in the days before, long before an X-Tracker was formed by Suvi and Dan. Dan and Powerlight were going to SunTech and saying, why can't we just take, a, you know, create a 92 cell panel and rack it straight onto a square tube, right? And they tried that, the U-bolt straight onto the tube, panels torqued. <laughs> so there's a couple of things that you're challenging here. And I want to talk a bit back at a macro level for, uh, so the folks don't get, we're on the risk of geeking out too much just on one little, little piece of the overall value chain. But if we think about any business, and we talked about what you just discussed. There's IP, there is you know, trade secrets, there's understanding about how to build an ecosystem. There's kind of two elements to getting a new product to the market. There's protect it with IP and then create and then protect it with strategy. So my question to you would be, what's more important, IP or go-to-market strategy? I, I actually think it's a combination. And what we're trying to walk the fine line is how do you optimize among both? You got to add value, that's for sure. And so... Part of our value is clear that right now, there's not a lot of expertise in design at the module companies that do frames. They've been playing with virtually the same frames for a long time. And how do you truly think through the optimization of roll form steel? So mm -hmm. we, we actually can accelerate there. And so our, the, no, the kind of the go-to-market is our ability to communicate real and material time-to-market advantage. And with the cost savings we can bring, again, it'll vary by region, and ultimately, the design for each module company and each one of their products use. But ultimately, we're going to save them dollars, sometimes big dollars on a frame that can be locally produced. And so time to market, they want to reap that benefit sooner than later. And most of them want to go to market with the messaging of a much greener solar module. And the developers want to market that too. And so it's uh, the IP and the go-to-market are aligned. We want to protect it. But the more we do, we're more, we're, the more we're finding there's opportunities to find new ways to expand the IP. But it's the go-to-market that gives real believable acceleration and time to market the switch from aluminum. Well, it certainly comes down to, again, one of those scenarios where it's good to be in the right place at the right time, but you still have to change buying behavior, you have to, you have to influence buying behaviors. So you have to influence buying behavior on the, on the, on the developer side where they have to uh, acknowledge this is actually a benefit. And then you have to change buying behavior at the procurement side because you don't manufacture solar panels. You are an input to solar panels. So you invariably have to deal with folks who have other embedded interests. I'm curious, I'm curious, how do you choose who to work with in this world where you are trying to engage? I mean, bear in mind, 
I worked with Tygo when I was at Trina on their introduction of the first smart products to solar panels. Uh, I worked with Zep on their introduction to the first sort of change of a solar panel line. I worked at Lion Energy when we literally convinced Trina again to add a, another machine at the end of their line to sort of do this new methodology. And I know how long it is and how hard it is. My question again is, how do you think about strategically in this go-to-market strategy, who to work with and how big or small that basket is? Yeah, well, uh, the classic conundrum, your first customer mm-hmm. is always the hardest. Mm-hmm. But if you have a good story to tell, and I really view both the solar companies and the steel companies as our customers. Our licensing model, we've intentionally designed it so it'll be easy. And the goal is most people just want to buy a good frame that delivers on this value proposition. And so that's why we're really focused on steel companies and more importantly, uh, roll forming fabricators. Because that's where the licensing can be. We are bringing them huge growth in a market solar that has got unbelievable growth prospects. So we bring tremendous value to any roll forming company and the steel companies behind them. But we bring tremendous value. And so they appreciate it. It takes us time to do it, but we want to find, and the people we're working with now are literally leaders in the industry, all with multi-regional footprints. They're not just a local company. You want somebody that's got the scale and the regional geographic diversification to cover where the demand is going to be consumed. So that ultimately is where we're focusing on. And we picked some great players. I can't share there. We're under NDA right now. We'll go public with them shortly. But that's literally where we're going. So on the steel side, on the module side, it's the people that are progressive. We we have connections across solar between the the executive team here at Origami. And we just talked to, we we present the value proposition. And once we do that, we have not had anyone not want a follow-up. We are getting tremendous interest. And literally it's how do we just weed through the ones that want to engage now versus just want to kick tires. And that's an engagement model, but we're getting plenty of those people wanting to engage. They see the value and the urgency and the perfect timing of what the solution is in the North America with IRA domestic content benefit and and, uh, tax credits that you could go after. It is scratching the itch. We are hitting a perfect storm, positive, perfect storm. How do you think about push versus pull to get that product into the market? Are you more of like a Dan Sugar style, go find the developers and tell them to ask for what your product delivers? Or are you more on the push side? I know it's a, I know it's a combination of both. I just want to hear your thoughts about this product, sort of the product marketing side of the strategy. Uh, it's, I believe in the pull side. You know, we are engaging with them and having great conversations. We've been talking to some of the biggest developers in the world uh, for over a year. Uh, gosh, coming up on 18 months. And they keep wanting to talk more. They're dying to do it. There's several offering to do their own test and evaluation of our steel frames just so they can get hands-on with their EPCs. So we're getting the traction. And it's about driving awareness, validating the benefits we're going to bring. And then I think in the not-too-distant future, work with them to potentially put out an RFP for a domestically produced steel frame because they are getting the fact that domestic production is where they want to go. It's a more robust. It's what you know, next tracker is talking about and first solar is talking about too, is that you want to build in the market where they're going to be consumed, ideally. 
The silicon supply chain is going to be harder and longer, but we could start now and it will make life simpler and more predictable and lower cost sooner than later. Of the many hurdles and headaches you're engaging in uh, as a, as a startup CEO, are there one, is there one or two that ranks at the top of the, the challenge that is hardest for you as an organization when you think about scale? What one or two problems or hurdles do you need to overcome when you think about actually being able to scale, not the technological application, not the finding clients, but being able to scale the business itself? Well, the beauty of our business model is it's not going to take a lot of capital to scale. We don't have to buy capital equipment and so forth. So it is a very lightweight model, which is the good part of a licensing business model. The challenging part is there's always possibilities for an exit, and we're exploring multiple there too. But if we take it as a pure licensing model, there isn't a transactional event where you get to pay off your investors. It could be a 20-year dividend, coupon clipping as we call it, of royalty payments uh, coming to us. And almost every investor fund, institutional investor fund, is focused on where is the exit, be it an IPO, an acquisition. And so the fundraising is probably always, you know, every startup CEO's biggest challenge, but it's a little more difficult. And I had, I did not really internalize that on the front end, but we've been able to do it. We're navigating it. We feel really good about where we're going, but that is the thing is that uh, you rule out 80 plus percent of all investors, basically because there's not a transactional exit with a large payoff uh, potentially. But we do see, and we're clearly understanding is that the value we're bringing to steel companies and fabricators is huge with the increased volume of this great and growing market called solar. And the size of it is very strategic to many of these companies. And so they're interested in working with us proactively and aggressively. So we're, we're really finding that that is where they get to take advantage of the operational synergies and the IP royalty string that we bring. I think the only other thing that I would have asked you a bunch of questions around, and obviously I did in other conversations, but I'd like to just return back to here for the sake of the arguments that I hear people hurtling at their headphones right now. Number one prime among them are, well, this is, that's great, Greg, but why would anybody do anything that's going to cost more? And um, it seems to me like this is just going to be a change towards more costs. And I know that you said that steel is the third cost of aluminum, but the industry at large is using aluminum at scale and not steel. So how does this you know, play and how does it factor into the actual cost of the solar panel itself? I think we owe it to, so to smart listeners to answer that question. Well, that, that one third cost premium or benefit, I should say, not that mm -hmm. premium, the one third, the cost is huge because mm -hmm. the cost of the material is typically 80 plus percent of the total cost of the end product, mm -hmm. especially in, you know, frames. Yeah. often closer to 90%. And so we have two real cost savings, the material cost savings. Those are volatile, but typically steel and aluminum track uh, yep. in similar cycles. Yep. But also roll forming uh, is going to be much cheaper because there's a lot of post-processing you have to do to an extruded aluminum rail yeah. that roll forming can do in line in a continuous process. And virtually it's going to be almost immeasurable on the cost delta. Mm -hmm. We have a savings in terms of the material and the total fabrication to get a finished frame. 
while making it look virtually identical to all installers and to the assembly line automation where the frame is attached to the laminate. Yeah. So that is, and that could yield uh, a penny a watt savings easily. We see that now. So literally the savings of those two things in terms of fabrication costs and material costs can yield. Uh, It will always, there's not a simple number because all regions have different and volatile steel and aluminum commodity costs and labor costs. But we definitely feel like that penny a watt savings is a good indicator of what is the potential. And that translates into, you know, real material dollars. Yeah. Fantastic. Did you guys raise any money to get this off the ground? Oh, yeah. We've actually had uh, two rounds of uh, seed investment closed and we're starting to work towards our Series A. But we got lots of parties talking to us now, and uh, they are classically where they see the operational synergies with their business or the really passionate ESG investors that yeah. love, you know, things that reduce the cost of solar to sure. make it scale even bigger, love the greenhouse, 90% greenhouse gas reduction footprint that we embody, as well as the ability to domestically source and build energy independence and local jobs. Given that you've done this a couple of times, raising money, taking a company through a, a high growth period, how do you think about or how would you advise others who are in this stage to think about structuring the, the spending plan, right? There's one that as a CEO, your job is to go raise the money, but you have to structure that capital plan around what you spend it on. How are you as a primarily hardware uh, and IP focused company thinking about spending that capital? Well, especially when you have a disruptive new solution like we do. A lot of it is driving awareness and move that towards preference and comfort. And so we spend a lot on that. And that's kind of where we spent because we have a great idea. And now that we've actually in the last six, seven weeks gone out of stealth mode and we've really brought this message to the industry, it has been an overwhelmingly positive response. In all of my startups and even at HP, the value proposition package coupled with the timing of delivering this value proposition, I've never seen it better. Mm. It really is the perfect timing uh, to deliver on this. So it's that combination. Yeah. Are you spending a lot on marketing? Uh, well, uh, uh, it's uh, in terms Besides of- Eric, of budget, obviously yeah. is making a lot of money being your thing. Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, I go back, I got to give Eric the credit. He has done a masterful job of getting us to where we are now. With, you know, I will tell you that we are talking to the module manufacturers that represent 85 plus percent of the total supply in the world. Doesn't mean we're going to get them all, but I'm just saying we got 85% of the total worldwide capacity. Those companies are talking to us. That's a hard thing to accomplish no matter who you are. That's why we're spending it. We need the discussions. And then my job is to close and deliver the value proposition on the go to market that makes it compelling for them to want to select us. So there's a lot of folks out there who have raised money and they realize that they need to raise awareness of a brand now. They're past, you know, they're like series A, series B, past product market fit and validation. What's working for you in terms of really getting that awareness out there? Packaging it up well and constantly listening to where people are coming from. We learn in every engagement we have, we learn something that allows us to tune it and really refine our business strategy uh, and our go-to-market plan to better align. And this is a segmented market. One size does not fit all. 
So we're getting mm-hmm. better and better at tuning it to the different players and understanding their real needs. And what you called out was perfect is that a lot of them just want to make this look like it's a new supplier. Mm-hmm. And so we're in the process now of retooling our strategy and our communications to really make much clearer that engaging with origami is going to not be really much any different than just bringing on a new supplier that can make you a frame that will meet all of your requirements and deliver on the value proposition. Yeah, right. And we've got data to show that it's beneficial to your ESG goals. And we've got data to show that EPCs are going to ask for it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's a, it's a multi, I'd love to have a conversation with Eric at some point. It's got to be, it's a fascinating marketing problem because you do have to create demand in a very different way for a product like this, such that you can be able to, in the convincing of show that there's market demand for it. It's kind of an, if you build it, they will come kind of scenario. Oh, absolutely. Are there any particularly salient lessons or takeaways when you think about the moments in your life where mentors have made a big impact on a career decision, uh, a move that because they trained you in a certain way, helped you to think about your leadership and impact? One of the ones that I think about a lot, it was, he was a marketing and strategy exec at HP. And he helped me learn how to see the bigger picture of what I mentioned earlier was that disruption of digital media mm-hmm. and how it could ripple in. Mm. And he didn't formally mentor me, but I was a avid and passionate observer. And I engaged him in lots of conversations so I could see how he thought and how he saw that bigger picture that was still really foggy to me and virtually most people. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the most seminal for me to look at big markets and see, I say that uh, larger picture to understand what's the dynamics and how do we play yeah. to that. So uh, like I said, he, he may not know it. I'm sure he doesn't, but he was one of the seminal people I learned from the, how do you think in that strategic level? I love that. You know, it's funny. I've had so many people that worked for Dan that I feel like Dan is a mentor to me. He never formally has been a mentor. He's definitely a friend. He's been on the show a couple of times and, and we've known each other for years, but I probably quote him more than anybody else. And I kind of see it as this, what you're describing, this guy at HP who was a leader who heavily influenced the way you thought about your work and where you, where you saw the markets going, right? Dan says, uh, and Tara Doyle shared this in a previous, previous interview. So I share it often. Failure is feedback, but also no is a request for more information. I think Dan is one of the best visionaries in this industry. Yeah. He truly does see and can connect dots like very few others uh, so in solar. I yeah. totally agree with that. He, yeah. he is, uh, he, he's it's like, you, he's seeing around the corners mm. that nobody else has been able to peek at yet. So yeah. I, I give him tremendous credit for what he's well, done with that- Next Tracker and his career. I think that you're in uh, the same camp, my friend, uh, as I've said twice. So twice already in this, uh, in this interview, you've seen around some, some corners that others have been slow to react to. And you've seen around them in ways that have solidified growth companies for acquisition, which is a tremendous track record. It speaks volumes for the ability to match skill and timing and luck and, and market placement. I wonder then uh, to put you on the spot, what corners Beyond uh, the frames of the module, what, cor- what corners are you looking around? Where is the industry seeing more bottlenecks than solutions? And uh, where do you think our next problems are going to be solved? 
Well, there's a couple things. Um, you know, in terms of the ability to close the deal, I just a quick sidebar, but uh, the ability to have been on both sides of the acquisition table, the buy side and the sell side, mm-hmm. gives you tremendous insights as to how both halves look at it. So that's one I, I want to mm-hmm. acknowledge. But uh, I, I am disciplined. When I'm in the heat of the, right now, the origami maelstrom, where we're getting more activity than we know what to do with, I get focused very much. As we get past this, that's when I start looking, looking for something around the corner. Because in a small company, it's an all hands on tax. I'm, I'm doing note taking for the team at times. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, you know, everybody has to do whatever they need to do to get the job done. And so uh, it's a great question. And give me a few months and I will nat- natively start looking around the corner and yeah. seeing what may be next. Well, you've been in the uh, driver's seat as, a, uh, as an executive, but I think it also is a very entrepreneurial role in all three of the ventures that you have led, including this one. I wonder if you have any final thoughts of advice. I have a couple more questions I want to ask before we round out, but any additional advice for fellow entrepreneurs that are in the throes of startup life? I want to emphasize, talk to everybody you can. Identify the problems. Meet your customers, your partners, suppliers. Really understand it 360 and personally understand it. Because what I've seen a lot of visionary founders do, Mm. they get so caught up in their idea, which usually is often great. They lose sight of how do you really execute and bring the value to the market? Because they get, they live in their vision, not in the challenges and opportunities. Because you will get lots of no's and it's a feedback yeah. for, it's, it's, it's a signal they need more information. And there's going to be, get caught up in potentially overly caught up on the successes and ignore the failures, which is the failures where you're going to learn the most. You need to transition from your visionary to get grounded. And how do you actually deliver this in an effective way to the market you want to go after? So I'll, I'll, I'll end with that. I believe that leaders are readers. I believe that books and uh, authors have a way of transmitting, transmuting, uh, learning lessons learned through the centuries. I wonder, is there a particular book or author that has had an indelible impact on you and the way you show up in the world that you'd pass along to the Suncast tribe? It's a well-known one, but the, the one that changed my career in thinking about leadership is The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. I encourage everybody. There's lots of other books, but the fundamental tenets there are usually yeah. captured the, what I view as what it is. You know, seek first to understand before being understood is one of the most yeah. powerful things I've ever learned in my life, mm-hmm. personally and professionally. Along those lines, is there a particular habit or consistent practice that's given you great impact or leverage in your life? Uh, it could be a morning routine or some other consistent practice that you have uh, I'd say the biggest one that I would use, it's the, not a personal practice, it's more of a leadership practice, is uh, I value uh, and appreciate opinions that are different than mine. And I, am, I actively search to find somebody or multiple people that I work with that are willing to tell me, uh, that was the dumbest idea I've ever heard, Greg. And then can back it up with why it's the dumbest idea they've ever heard. Because that's a mm-hmm. lesson for me to learn from. And I would say that uh, is the other thing is that I need to be the leader. And that leadership is essential. But it's got to be in a culture that is supportive of 
contrarian opinions to mine and others, because that allows us to debate and advance the collective insights that we want to apply and my personal insights as to how do we play it. So I, I, that, that's probably the closest thing. I can't think of a good personal practice that I do on a daily basis, uh, other than just wake up <laughs> and drink coffee. <laughs> well, waking, waking up, as I say on the show, showing up is half the battle. Yeah. If folks are so inclined, how can they reach out? How, what's the best place to engage with you? Oh, I, I, love, I love to mentor people. I truly find it as a fundamental joy. Uh, I, I try to do it with my kids, their friends, uh, anybody that comes to me that wants to tackle a problem. And I am fascinated by how you succeed in a startup. So they can reach me. Uh, literally, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, you can definitely reach out to me there. Uh, I can also make my email, uh, personal email if need be, available. I'm more than willing to share because I do love to hear and learn. I mean, I'll tell you right now, I'm not going to respond real quickly until we get origami through this maelstrom of interest and activity. But it charges my batteries when I get to mentor others. I love it. Well, if anyone wants to get connected with Greg, feel free to email me, Nico at mysuncast.com. Lots of folks have that email. I'll make sure that you can get connected with him. If you haven't already tried to reach out with him on LinkedIn, I would encourage you to do that. And uh, Greg, let's end today with a bold prediction. What besides steel framed solar modules do you believe is the next sort of pivot in the clean energy industry? Perhaps what's holding us back? What do you see in your crystal ball for the next 18 to 24 months? Maybe perhaps in light of the, Inve the Inflation Reduction Act being passed? Well, I, I think the next biggest thing is what is manifesting real quick and the IRA will accelerate. We've got to rebuild the domestic supply chains mm -hmm. and not just in the US, but in every region of the world. Mm. It is inherently fragile. And I believe solar is going to be 50 to 70% of the power portfolio by 2050. And it needs to be. And that means insanely huge growth. And you cannot flow that much growth effectively and predictably when you have supply chains crossing massive oceans to make it happen. Taking out all the geopolitics and the stress that's going on in the world, it's just inherently fragile and bottlenecked. It just occurred to me, you know, there's a statistic floating around that uh, the shipping industry itself uh, is like the fourth largest economy in the world in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, not, not economy, but it's the fourth largest greenhouse gas emitter in the world, including all global economies, um, the shipping industry. And uh, some ungodly number, somewhere in the 40% range of yeah. global shipping is to supply our generating assets around the world uh, in some form or other with fossil fuels, right? Coal, liquid fuel, natural gas, et cetera. And uh, if you're not careful, this renewable energy future that we uh, deem necessary uh, could end up looking the same way, right? Absolutely. <laughs> we're, I mean, we're shipping panels from all from from China and everywhere and everywhere else halfway around the world. Uh, the same way we're shipping coal around the world now to generate power. So it's not it's not a far stretch to say, hey, be doing the same thing in solar if we don't uh, change the way we think about supply. Absolutely. I mean, look at what Russia's done with twenty percent of the fossil fuel supply <laughs> worldwide. Yeah. And how they've been, what they've been able to do and the impact of that disruption. Yeah. Eighty five plus percent of the solar power is shipped out of Asia mm -hmm. to the rest of the world. And so to a degree, it's just, it just, again, from every aspect, from a greenhouse footprint mm -hmm. to cost, actual cost to supply disruptions that could happen yeah. from a lot of things. It's the right answer. And I'm hoping it takes off viscerally 
in all of the regions of the world because solar power is the only way that we're going to solve the challenges that we face societally. Greg Patterson is the CEO of Origami Solar. He's a true solar warrior, uh, industry veteran, mentor, and wants to be your friend if you're trying to grow a company in this industry. As you've heard over the last uh, 60 plus minutes, he really cares about getting innovation uh, in this industry and getting it right. Craig, thank you for taking the time to mentor us through this last hour plus session. Nico, I want to thank you. It's been such an enjoyable experience to go through this and share my stories and potentially wisdom. But thank you for the time and the interest you're showing to me. My pleasure. All right, Solar Warrior, what a conversation. Greg, I just want to say thank you. I've learned so much from you. I think one of the things that stands out to me from the conversation that we had was the thought that the integration is way more important than the acquisition. And few have had the opportunity to integrate more than you have, Greg. I appreciate the leadership that you've given our industry and the insights that you've left us with here about not just the importance of integrating teams post-acquisition, but the importance of true mentorship in your career, in all of our careers, and the legacy that one can leave when you take the time to invest in others. Well, hey, if you are eager to keep learning, well, you, my fellow Philomath, can find all the resources and highlights from this discussion, and frankly, every other discussion from Suncast, along with all the social media links and the book recommendations that we've given over on the blog Click on the episode notes at mysuncast.com. Since I know you're already going to be hopping online, I'd love it if you'd take a moment to share this episode with someone on LinkedIn. I know that there are plenty of folks that you want to tag to have them listen to the takeaways and the nuggets of wisdom that were dropped here with Greg. But if you could do Greg and I one additional favor that would help others find this episode and so many others on Suncast, that would be leave us a rating and review your five-star and enthusiastic rating over at ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast helps folks find this show and learn and grow with us the same way that you have here today. You see, you're all the way listening to the outro. So that tells me that you are really enjoying this. I hope that means that you've subscribed to the show. I hope that means that you will share it with others. And I hope it means you'll come back because next week, We go deep with another solar warrior tackling climate finance and investing in solar for the rest of us, the retail investors. My friend Kevin Conroy of Finite.io will be here to tell us all about what he is building. Thanks once again to our sponsors who help make this content free to you each and every week so that you can learn along with us. And all it costs is your attention. In your time. Thanks for spending it here with us today. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's also how you can learn ways that you can partner to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week, just like they have. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, solar warrior. It's half the battle.